Hello and welcome to Make Language Great Again. Today, it is my great joy to welcome a person whose work I admire deeply, Stephen Newcomb, one of the brightest world scholars of the doctrine of discovery. And I've been a fan for years when we work together at Indian Country today. And it is such a pleasure to have you today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, enjoying the opportunity to be able to speak with you and and have a conversation. Uh, thank you. And do you mind telling in your old words a little bit about yourself? Well, I've, um, I'm Shawnee and Lenape. That's my native uh, ancestry and background. And um, uh, that's through my mother's side of the family. And uh, I've been basically a person on a path since I was a teenager to try to better understand not only our native identity, our, our indigenous roots, so to speak, but also the history of what happened to our nations and peoples. And um, in terms of the overall history and, and just have done a deep dive into many, many historical records and so forth. And so what I've understood from that examination of the historical record is that there is an underlying system of what I call domination, which results in dehumanization. And so I've written quite extensively about that. I have a, a book called Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery. And also we have a documentary movie the Doctrine of Discovery, Unmasking the Domination Code. And so those are two particular works, but I wrote for Indian Country Today for many years and have done a lot of traveling. I could also mention that I'm the director of the Indigenous Law Institute, an organization that I founded with my friend and mentor, Virgil Kilstraight, who uh, was a traditional headman of the Oglala Lakota Nation. And Virgil and I started that organization back in 1992 and, um, and did so as part of an effort to call upon Pope John Paul II at that time to formally revoke the papal decree of May 4th, 1493. And uh, Virgil passed to the spirit world on February 10th of 2019. And so I'm carrying on the work um, with my daughter, Shauna Blue Star Newcomb. And, uh, and others, Joe De Gaudi of the Yakima Nation, Peter DeRico, who's just an amazing non-native ally, and uh, a few other folks. So yeah, that's just a little bit of my background. No, your work is amazing. And one thing that I particularly admire is your feeling of language and the way you can dissect the meanings that are hidden to money. And it's, it's absolutely amazing and beautiful. And so... Diving right in. Yeah. What is the doctrine well, uh, of discovery and yeah. what is your view of that? I mean, a small question, just a small question, you know. Sure. Well, the, the doctrine of discovery, it's called that, but I really prefer the doctrine of domination because it's more to the point. But the understanding of the doctrine of discovery, as it's been called for quite a few decades, is this idea that, or notion that the going back to the time of Christendom and the Christian empires of Europe and so forth during the time of Columbus and even prior to, to his voyages, 
that the nations of Europe, the nations of Christendom had an agreement that whichever of those monarchies or countries could have voyages sent to a non-Christian location and identify non-Christian lands had the right to assert, at least had a right according to the Christian European viewpoint, the right to assert a right of domination over those lands and territories. And I, I know that for many, many years, we had just habitually used the doctrine of discovery as a way of understanding how to name that or label it. But eventually it occurred to me that because we keep focusing on discovery, that that's off the point. Because the discovery part of it is simply the, the searching for the location of lands to dominate or to establish domination over, to search for or attempt to locate nations over whom the Christian nations of Europe could assert a right of domination. So then I wanted to go to the intention that they had for setting sail to begin with. And in order to do that, I realized I needed to talk about the intention of domination. Well, this is a story that we're all living, unfortunately. And the way we connected recently, we started talking about the relationship between the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny and it has existed tragically and brutally for many centuries and what is happening today seemingly. And, you know, my theory is that what's happening right now is manifest destiny 2.0, whereas originally the target to be dominated was the indigenous people. And now it's pretty much everybody who is not a billionaire. So I'm curious what you think about this, whether you think there's something to that theory or what is your view? Well, if we take, uh, you mentioned my tendency to examine terminology rather closely. And so this is one of those examples and, and an opportunity to go into that notion of manifest destiny. So that is a, a destiny that's believed in and how it's manifested uh, over time, over geographical areas and so forth. So then we have to ask, well, what is the destiny that's supposedly being manifested? And to get the answer to that question, you have to go to the Old Testament and the idea of the chosen people and the promised land. That is that there's a particular people in the Old Testament that uh, a deity comes to one of those people and says to him, come with me, leave your father's house and come with me to a land I will show you. And of course, that means that that deity already knows of the existence of that place. And so then he takes this person to that location and looking out over that land, he shows them a land of many nations where many nations are already existing. And the the Moabites, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, and so forth, seven nations, I believe it is in that section, And the idea is that this deity is recruiting that particular person and his people to engage in a process of taking that land away from the nations already existing there. And so that would be uh, this particular person called Abraham or Abraham, that uh, covenant with the Old Testament deity becomes a destiny 
on the part of Abraham or Abraham as he becomes known after a naming ritual. And that uh, obligation that he has through that covenant to take those lands away from those uh, unchosen peoples, the uh, process of doing that would be the manifestation of that destiny that he's been given by that deity. And so it's a God-given mandate is another way of expressing it from the viewpoint of those that believe in that, uh, that deity or that God, a God-given mandate or command to take those lands away from those who are already living in those places. So the peoples already living in those places then would be the original nations or peoples, and those coming in from the outside are the invading force or the invading nation or people that is coming in to uh, attempt to wrest that land or wrench that land, twist that land away from the, from the folks already living in those places. So when that plays out in North America, when you see the sermon that was delivered to the pilgrims uh, before they came across the ocean, came to North America, and the sermon that was delivered to the Virginia Company of Associates in England, both of the, those sermons were delivered on the basis of the theme that the, they were going to the promised land and sailing by ship to the promised land and being able to uh, take that land away from those who are already living there. Uh, and interestingly enough, the sermon in, to the Virginia Company of Associates begins with that very line about, uh, come with me leave your father's home and come with me to a land I will show you. So very clearly that whole narrative is what's behind this so-called doctrine of, of manifest destiny. And then with regard to the way in which this has played out, if you look at it from the perspective of the Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites, Amorites, and so forth, from their perspective and other people coming in on top of them, invading them, and engaging in a process of taking the land and everything away from them, their whole way of life, destroying their way of life. If you look at it in that way, uh, that's obviously a pattern of domination uh, on the part of those invading and carrying out that command by that deity. And so that, that pattern of domination and all of the abuses and so forth that happen as a result of that that's the domination system that, in my view, has gone all around the planet. It's only one example of the domination. We could get into others, such as the Roman Empire and, and many other empires, the whole nature of empires to establish domination. So we can get into that conversation. But it's a mentality. It's a mindset. It's a worldview that believes that a particular people are exceptional, to use that idea of American exceptionalism, are extraordinary be, beyond all others, and therefore have a kind of divine right or right by, by reason of a certain kind of intelligence, meaning the ability to have the form of intelligence that can dream up uh, diabolical plans for taking over other people's lands and territories that by virtue of that so-called intelligence, they have a right to establish their domination over others. And my response to that is to say there is no such thing as a right of domination, that that's simply made up on the part of these people uh, that engage in that kind of behavior because it serves them very well 
to believe in that and to follow through on that belief? Well, I think I've observed that people like to bring in higher entities into their own desires and the concept of bringing God into real estate business or science or progress. People bringing different concepts to justify what they want to do anyway. So if they want to invade, like seems like prior to a few thousand years ago, people were invading each other or they were fighting, but they were fighting without trying to make it sound lofty. Like they would want somebody's land or wife or anything like that, but they would not justify it with philosophy or theology or like science or anything like that. And now it seems like for the past few thousand years, this mentality has really succeeded in the world. So one of the interesting things that I wanted to ask you, you've researched deeply the legal aspects of the doctrine of discovery and how theological ideas impacted the American legal system. And this is something that very few people even know about to think about. And I've learned a lot from you. So if you can talk about it, it will be probably very educational for many people. Well, the, the system of theology, it's a, an idea system about God or about a deity, uh, a belief in God, but it's, it's a more comprehensive system about that and uh, engaged in by people, scholars that choose to spend their time thinking about such matters. And of course, usually it involves the Bible or some other kind of scripture. And uh, so this idea that came along uh, after many, many wars in Europe, religious wars, specifically wars between Catholics and Protestants and so forth after the Reformation, that conflict of religious warfare uh, that was fueled in large part by debates over theology, over ideas about God. And so the, the idea came along eventually that there should be a separation between church and state. At least that's what uh, we were taught in, in school that and, and taught just generally that there's a separation of church and state in the United States. And that was an effort to make sure that Congress did not get into the control or under the control of a particular religious denomination or religious orientation. So there will be no, there shall be no establishment of religion by Congress, by the government. That was the thinking. Um, Congress shall pass no laws uh, regarding the establishment of religion. So the, um, the way in which that has been contradicted, however, is the fact that you have founding documents that predate the United States Constitution, and those founding documents are uh, Vatican Papal Bulls. They are the um, Charters of England, and such as uh, the charter or commission given by King Henry VII to John Cabot and his sons, and many other such documents to... Uh, uh, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, Sir Walter Raleigh, the Virginia Charter, the Mayflower Compact, many of these different kinds of documents are considered to be organic, meaning originating documents for the political experiment called the United States. And so when you look at those documents, what you do see, especially in the English uh, documents, um, such as the Charter to John Cabot and his sons, 
it says very specifically in that document that that uh, John Cabot and his sons are to go forth to seek out, discover, and find whatsoever isles, countries, regions, or provinces of the heathens and infidels that before this time have been unknown to all Christian people. And that use of terminology about heathens and infidels is obviously referring to non-Christian people. So once they are able to identify or locate uh, those types of lands, the lands where non-Christians are living, then they are to, according to the document, establish jurisdiction there if they can, jurisdictionum in Latin, and also to establish the domination title, which is titulum dominium. And so that's listed in the Latin version of that document. That particular document is imitating the Vatican Papal Bulls of the 14th, of the 1400s, of specifically papal documents from 1493. And there were four such documents issued that year, right after Columbus returned from the Caribbean back to Christendom and back to what is now called Spain. And so the, the Pope's um, patterning in that document, or in those documents, I should say, because there are four of them, uh, is a pattern of domination whereby the Pope expresses his desire that the Christian empire be propagated. That's uh, imperii Christiani propagationum in Latin. And so this idea that the Christian empire is to be extended across the globe and taken wherever it can be taken, ac barbare nationes deprimentur, and barbarous nations be reduced, meaning subjugated or dominated. That's all part of the backdrop to the John Cabot Charter and to other charters of England and to the entire history of the United States. The political and legal framework of the United States are rooted in that mentality and rooted in those ideas and, uh, and arguments that go with those ideas. So it's pretty extraordinary to realize that there is no separation of church and state in that sense, that the, the United States government and the United States is a political experiment in this context that I'm talking about is an extension of the Christian empire. And that would seem to be contradicted by um, everything we've been told about a separation of church and state. But at the present moment, the president of the United States happens to be Catholic and six of the nine uh, members of the court were born and raised Catholic. I think one of them is now uh, Episcopalian or something, but he was certainly um, born into the Catholic, into a Catholic family and raised in that way. And then you have the other three members of the court, from what I understand, being of the Jewish religion. So the Judeo-Christian tradition is very much alive and well in the Supreme Court. And what's also alive and well in the Supreme Court is the Johnson versus McIntosh ruling of 1823 that uses this entire backdrop that I'm talking about with regard to Vatican papal documents and royal charters of England and the whole tradition of the doctrine of Christian discovery and domination as the backdrop to that Johnson versus McIntosh ruling from 1823. What the court created in that document is the argument uh, that the arrival of the Christian Europeans' mental world of domination to this continent 
is what ended the right and the ability of our original nations to live a free and independent existence, meaning free and independent of the mentality of domination brought across the ocean by the representatives of the monarchs of Christendom. And by monarchs of Christendom, I also include the Pope in that description because he's considered to be a prince uh, of a principality, meaning the Vatican city-state. So you have all of this amazing array of information. We didn't even get deeply into the Latin language yet, but if you go into that, you see a lot of additional strands of meaning, of thought, behavior that go into the overall picture of what we're dealing with across the globe today. Oh, this is amazing work. Thank you very much. And Steve, I have to check my door because somebody rang yeah. my bell and it's killing me. So Okay, please, go for it. One of the things that I think about a lot, and I would love to know what you think about it, uh, betrayal of people by their leaders. Like, for instance, a story from an entirely different land, an entirely different time. I used to do Tibetan studies, so I've studied history of you know, Tibetan kingdom. And uh, it's known that in the 7th century, there was a king in Tibet who for his personal reasons, probably decided that it would be more civilized if his people became Buddhists. And he married a Chinese princess and an Indian princess. And I guess at the time it was considered to be cool in the ruler's circle to be Buddhist rather than have all the Hedbon religion in Tibet, which is kind of an indigenous pagan uh, religious tradition or you know way of living. So... For a century and a half, there was bloodshed. And according to historians, nobody really wanted to be Buddhist at the time. And there was this bloodshed. And eventually, after a century and a half, people were converted. But there was that moment where the leader decided that the leader's ideas were sufficiently important to impose them upon the people living in his kingdom. Similarly, in my people's land, in Russia, there was also a leader who decided that enough paganism and at the time they were choosing religions they were actually choosing between uh islam judaism uh and then of christian faiths and they ended up going with orthodox because it was so glorious visually they really loved the churches and they really loved the eastern christianity so they went with that but then again there was a force upon the people who Nobody really remembers, nobody really knows. And, but I, I would imagine that people probably weren't crazy about it because no way people were crazy about being converted. So again, there was this act on behalf of the leader who wanted to be perceived as civilized. He probably wanted to have perks from you know, his fellow rulers. And it ended up creating tremendous trauma in the people and one of the things that I, I was telling you, and I've noticed, I realized that when I started working for Indian Country Today, I've noticed that there's some really uncanny parallels between the feel that I've gathered. And again, I can only guess, of course, but what I've gathered, how many uh, Native people feel, that kind of melancholy and the trauma, and a similar feeling in my people, especially in rural areas, because in the city, it's too busy, like nobody pays attention. But if you go deep in the village, there would be, a lot of dysfunctional things, a lot of sadness, and nobody knows why, and it just goes 
from generation to generation and kings change, rulers change, political systems change, but that melancholy is still hanging around. So my theory is that it started probably at the time when they were first converted to civilized religion. And the whole, to me, I think a lot about the moment of like personal choice. So the leader had to choose to do that. As a human being, the leader had to make the choice that his ideas were more important than the organic or chosen, let's say chosen state of the people. I mean, they wanted to be what they were and they didn't ask for advice. And it seems like in some lands it happened by the force of own leader and in some lands it happened by the force of invasion. But the end result seems maybe, well, obviously not similar and everybody's different and every nation is different and every nation has a personality, but the trauma is now almost universal. And there's this constant struggle where people are trying to just pull the blanket from one another and there's this trauma. And like one of the things that struck me, there's a Dagara elder called Maladoma Soma, I think. He talks a lot about the connection between the Western culture and the indigenous culture and the trauma. And one of his theories is that when Europeans, for example, went all over the world creating havoc, the impetus was trying to heal from their own trauma because they were really, they were not satisfied with something on the inside, so they were going around. But because they were so broken, they didn't know how to do it in a, like in a healthy way. So they created this hell all around. So, and I know, and I said a lot. So if you have any thoughts on any of that, I would greatly appreciate it. Well, hurt people hurt people, right? I mean, there's that little cliche that people who have been traumatized or uh, as children often uh, end up becoming very abusive. And um, sometimes they become world leaders. And and sometimes they become religious leaders and so forth. So um, the, the idea of trauma resulting from the kinds of history that you're talking about and the, the, the stories that you're talking about, about how uh, religion has often been used as a kind of weapon in the name of civilizing people. It's a very, very old story. And... And that's why I think that sometimes it's important to go deeper into some of the English words that we're using while acknowledging that the English language we're communicating in, at least from my perspective, is the language of the colonizer, of the invader. And so when you go deeper into some of the words, instead of allowing them to just being be kind of treated uh, in an unthinking or half-thinking manner, a kind of an unconscious manner, when you go deeper into them and think about those words and voc the vocabulary as if we're looking from the shore, looking out at those ships initially coming in from an invading uh, perspective uh, from Western Christendom, to give just one example, when you look at those words such as civilized, you use that word civilized, well, they want to civilize them. So let's examine that word for a moment. And civilization as a term, when you look it up in Webster's Third New International Dictionary, it means or states that it means the forcing of a cultural pattern on a population to which it is foreign. So whether that uh, cultural pattern is a religion 
or another way of life or a belief and belief in a particular deity or perspective or what have you, if it's being imposed and forced on some other people uh, and, and that it, it's foreign, a foreign way of thinking, a foreign way of life being forced on another pa- nation or people, especially by, by lethal force, by killing and by mayhem and destruction, then of course that causes trauma. And so the people that have become part of that are themselves traumatized because they've been through it themselves at some earlier time. And now they're extending that, the bestowing the blessing of that civilization of that forcing forcible process onto others. And so civilized, uh, they need to be civilized means they need to be dominated. That's the decoding of civilization. The word civilization is a synonym for domination because it's that process of extending a system of domination over places uh, and over peoples where it has not yet been established. And so uh, the word civil, the civil order, the, the origin of a civil order, according to Thomas Hobbes in a book that I have just right beside me, is um, uh, he has a section where he's talking about the causes of civil government And the opening cover sheet for that book, uh, for that particular passage, it states uh, dominion, dominion. I had it right here yesterday. Uh, But in any case, it it states dominion. So when you take the word dominion and you remove the letter N from the end of it, you end up with dominio, which is a Latin term meaning to dominate. So the origin of the civil order or the civil government is domination. And then they talk about civil society as if that's a, a positive good. And, you oh, you're not behaving in a civil manner, meaning politely, obediently, uh, behaving according to the strictures or mandates or standards that have been imposed on everyone. So that's, that's a big part of this puzzle. And then you have civilization, but also the word state. And Max Weber, a very important German sociologist, uh, wrote an essay in 1919. It was published in 1919 called um, Politics as a Vocation. And he says in there that the state is a relation of men dominating men. If the state is to exist the dominated must submit themselves to the authority claimed by the powers that be. So now you have civilization and state, both meaning domination. Another term is sovereignty, which Jonathan Havercroft in his book, Captives of Sovereignty, published in 2014, he provides the following definition for that term, which is an unjust form of political domination that limits human freedom. So that's a third word meaning domination. And then you have ascendancy, which is controlling, influence, governing power, domination. It's provided right in the definition itself in Webster's Third New International Dictionary. And then you have the word property, which is defined in the Ballantine Law Dictionary, or Ballantine's, I guess it is, Law Dictionary, that says not the material object itself, but the absolute right of domination obtained over that object. So we could say obtained in relation to that object. So there again, domination. And then you also have the word dominion, 
which is domination. I already said, remove that last letter N and you get dominio. And then you also have the root of dominio, which is domo, which means to subjugate, to subdue, to force into subservience, to tame, to domesticate, to cultivate, and to till. And so those are seven terms of domination. Then you also have the, the idea of empire. And so that's obviously a system of domination over a large geographic, geographical area. So there are seven terms of domination in, in that I've just stated, but in that also you have the seven terms of domo, so that's 14. And then you have another seven that are found in the papal bull from, from uh, 1452, the Doom Diversus papal bull issued by Pope Nicholas V to King Alfonso of Portugal, which instructs the king of Portugal to, the, to go to the western coast of Africa and to invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to take away all their possessions and property and to convert the land meaning to unlawfully or wrongfully take away that which belongs to another or to someone else. So altogether you have 21 terms of domination, which results in all these patterns of domination, which results in all these patterns of trauma. And the, the net effect of all of that is a deep depression, especially if you don't understand what in the world happened uh, over the course of generations to cause all of that suffering and misery, or you might have a general sense of it or even a very specific sense of it, uh, but trying to make sense of it, that's a whole different matter. And so that trauma leads to alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, sexual abuse, spousal abuse, uh, all the different kinds of abuse that result from the manifestation of a domination system. But then it's not called that, it's called democracy, I mean, there's all kinds of labels that people put on these atrocious codes of, of thought and behavior uh, that are so destructive to the ecological systems of the planet, to human beings and uh, to one another and so forth. But it's all just um, a lot of uh, verbal nicety, synonyms or euphemisms, nice sounding words for really terrible things that cover the true nature the horrible nature of the domination system. Well, you know, like my, my, my system is always spinning about. So what now? Like it's, it's obviously a mess and there's so much suffering that no one human being can even understand what's happening. There's just too much. And I am thinking again, going back to right now, it seems like almost like chickens coming home to roost because for a while, the Western world was able to elevate and kind of isolate psychologically from all that with you know, a few decades of relatively good life at the ruins of everything, but for a lot of people, kind of good life from World War II to, I don't know, 2000. And now everything is collapsing, coming back. And everybody right now is psychologically or economically in the same position of somebody who, who is to be dominated, more explicitly so, because I don't think that there was dignity and respect in earnest for anybody, but there was a way to distract. There were pleasant ways to distract. 
Now the ways to distract are kind of being taken away and everything is falling apart. And I don't know, for everybody to get their the, the, the hearts together and to realize that the freedom that is being taken away from the people now, seemingly on a large scale, is exactly the same freedom that was taken away from the indigenous. And fundamentally, there's no difference, meaning the indigenous people, there's today's term indigenous, but they were human beings living their lives, minding their business, and that was just a normal way to be. Similarly, like the people of today who are not indigenous, they feel the same way. They're just normal human beings. They're doing whatever they're doing. They don't want anybody to come and take their freedom, but fundamentally it's the same thing. And so my dream is that the people who are who feel sacred, like American Constitution and all those things that are sacred symbols and they have an emotional feeling about it, so that's what's being taken away, if they realize that the same thing was taken away from the indigenous and there's no fundamental difference. Like it's true that like whatever was being done to the indigenous, it's almost logical if it's being done to everybody else because it's the same thing. And I don't know if people realistically will come to this realization, but my theory is that this is what this time is for, to have this opportunity where people realize that until treaties with the native peoples are kept like a sacred thing, like completely, and until this healing is done, it's not likely that we're going to take care of our problems. And by our, I mean, whatever, Western European, all that. So I don't know if I'm being lofty. This is my big hope. So do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think there's something, something to be said for being lofty, quote unquote. Uh, uh, one time I gave a presentation and, and a person following up said, I, I hardly know how to respond to such lofty thinking, which was actually an insult, but it was disguised as a, as a compliment. But um, uh, so usually that's used as kind of a, criticism to be lofty but i think we have to let our imaginations run wild with all the possibilities of living um in a kind of reality that's not under domination and what would a domination free zone look like are there any on the planet at this time because i don't i don't know of any um but going more fundamentally to to your comment and your your question it has to do with the words that we're using in an effort to make sense of our lives and in an effort to make sense of reality. So for example, and this is not a criticism, it's an observation, uh, and this is very, very common. In your comment and your question, uh, you were using some very taken for granted categories such as human being or indigenous. And if we re-examine those terms, again, from the shore looking out at the ship, we end up with a very different kind of perspective. And let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean. So the word indigenous in the international working definition in the United Nations, it's defined as basically this, the descendants of, original, of an original people that was existing in a place when a second population came in and through, um, through conquest, through uh, conquest settlement and other means established dominance over them. 
So in other words, establish domination over them. So the descendants of a particular people that were living in a place when a secondary population came in and through conquest, settlement, and other means established domination over them. So what that tells us then is the term indigenous in that context means dominated peoples. So when we use that as a universal term to say everybody's indigenous, meaning everybody's dominated, everybody's been imposed upon by the domination system, that's a commonality that we all share. That's not the usual way that people understand that word indigenous. They think it means just a, a people that are original to a place. And okay, yeah, that's part of it, of the mission too. But there's that secondary part, which has to do with the imposition of the domination system on them. And there's no envisioning of one day that domination being lifted off of them and them being able to restore their original free and independent way of life, free and independent of that system of domination, that's considered to be there for all time, that it will be permanent and forever. The Latin version of the papal bull uses the term imperpetua, meaning eternally, eternally under domination. That's quite a, it's kind of like Orwell's uh, idea of um, the boot grinding someone's face forever. Um, you know, it's that type of idea. Now, then also going to the term human being, there's a very important uh, legal decision from the Supreme Court of California from 1930. And it's called City of San Diego versus Cuyamaca Water Company. It's kind of irrelevant as to the nature of the decision and all that. But there's a very important point that the Supreme Court makes in the decision. They say that the only thing existing here in California at the time of this, or prior to, I should say, the Spaniards, prior to the Spaniards, was a state of barbarism, which is a term barbarism that goes back to the barbari nationis depremantur, the barbarous nations uh, to be reduced or dominated, right, subjugated. So a state of barbarism is a non-human existence from the viewpoint of the quote unquote, civilized or uh, Christianized nations of Europe. And so then we can say, well, that's terrible. You know, they shouldn't be dehumanizing the people in that way, considering them not to be human. But if we approach it from a different standpoint and we say, okay, well, then by what means were these people to supposedly become human? And then we answer that question by pointing out, oh, they were to become human by being baptized in the Catholic um, religion and also forced to build their own prison in the form of a mission and forced to labor and toil under the priest and the Spanish soldiers and suffer all kinds of abuse and torment because they're now living under the domination system. And the result of living under the domination system is that they're now human. And human beings are those that live under the domination system, just like the term indigenous. And so you're not allowed, according to the viewpoint of the Christian empire, you're not allowed to be both independent of the Christian empire and human. If you're human, it means you're under the Christian empire. If you're free and independent of the Christian empire, then you're non-human, you're barbarian, you're heathen, pagan, infidel, all these kind of slurs or uses of terms to suggest that you're missing some very crucial part of your existence 
when in actuality, what that crucial part is, is that you're not yet living under their control. You're still free and running around free. You're running around loose. They got to round you up and bring you under their system. And then you would get to become human. So then once you're human, then you're suffering abuse and torment and oppression. So then they say, well, look, you, you, you should have some human rights. So then they come out with the international covenants on human rights. But then they say those are, those are fundamental, but they are aspirational. And they're something you aspire to have one day. Someday you will get that uh, if fire long enough. But it's really the carrot on the stick in front of the horse and the horse is walking, 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 but never getting the carrot because it's aspirational. And so these are the very creative and unusual ways that we can dissect and and examine the, the language that we're operating within that we're speaking right now and a lot of the terms that are taken for granted. So once we understand this big picture then we can begin to realize, oh my goodness, there is a commonality we all share, which is having been forced under the same domination system and experiencing all kinds of horrific effects as a result of that. But the people that have lived in the American empire, in the context of the American empire, have done pretty well, at least sectors of the population have done pretty well for themselves because they're getting the fruits and the benefits of an empire that extends itself all around the planet, through some 850 or more military bases around the world and uh, for the purpose of, you know, uh, exploiting resources all over, extending its domination planetarily and even into space and so forth, because that's its religion. The thing that binds and rebinds. Religio is the root of religion. You take the letter N away from that and once again you get an O on the end and religio means to rebind or to bind repeatedly through psychological means. And so that's, um, you know, the religion of, of the United States, of the American empire, is domination. It's just that people don't realize that because they cover it with words like democracy and freedom and independence. It was never the people that were supposed to be free and independent, by the way. It was the empire. So it was a declaration of independence for their new empire, which they called the American empire. And George Washington called it our infant empire. It was a baby, just barely born. And George Washington called it this our widespreading empire. And uh, Jefferson called it an empire of liberty. Yeah, well, it was the empire that had the liberation, not the people. And so who created that empire? It was the planters, the uh, plantation owners, the slave owners, the bankers, the lawyers, the elite of the elite of the elite, and just like it is today. So just a, what we're experiencing today is just a more recent manifestation of the exact same patterns. Well, so much to say. First of all, thank you for such an extensive comment on the word indigenous, because personally, like, from my heart, I don't like this word. Every time I use it, I feel like I need to provide another explanation of what I mean in this exact instance. So, yes. So, thank you. That was but one thing. I just want to say real quick is that's uh -huh. why I began to use the term original nations to to I sometimes say indigenous still, but to get to the point of the original nations. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, of course. Uh, no, the thing is, is, is that there's so many meanings and. The way I use it usually, I mean kind of the original state, meaning the original 
way of life and that existed pretty much all over the planet. And this is my own personal semantics of this word, but using it, then it's necessary to explain and then provide a mile of comments. And then by the time the comments are done, everybody's confused them. So, (laughs) and as far as human being, I actually didn't know about the interpretation that you just uh, provided. I Of course, I mean, like, it's now that people were dehumanized and that barbarians, quote unquote, were never considered people by whoever came next. But I did not, yeah, I didn't really think about that. So thank you. No one has, because I never thought about it till very recently. (laughs) I had to think about that for a very long time to realize, wow, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. It's staggering to look at all those implications of of that uh, understanding, right? No, the, 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 the technique of redefining words, I think it's the ancient treacherous technique that people have been hurting from for centuries because coming from, again, what the missionaries did of various world religions, and it was kind of the same mechanism where they would redefine things, what was considered normal is now considered bad and people are supposed to defy their nature and disconnect from nature and then try to be moral from the head in a way that somebody explained them to be how to be moral and then the first person explaining was probably evil and then 10 generations later everybody forgot and everybody's just confused and sad but today even with this whole science as a hashtag where they're trying to redefine what human touch means and where they say, yes, human touch is important, but now it's the machine, the VR that is going to touch you. So it's the same thing that is completely broken and treacherous, but on steroids because of all of this technology. And wow. I mean, yeah, it is a mess. And Speaking of healing, you know what I really what I really wanted to do? I also wanted to include your daughter Shauna in this podcast, but then I figured that the logistics would be just too complicated. So maybe another mm-hmm. time we can do that because she's such a force of peace and kindness and wisdom. And like speaking of healing, I would really want to also ask her what she thinks about all that. And mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe you can tell me a little bit about her just, just in a few words so that... Yeah, um, Shauna Blue Star Newcomb, she is um, uh, doing really wonderful work because she was raised with all this kind of information uh, her whole life, basically. And, and, and so she, but she, her orientation is as a mother, as a um, person that really identifies with the youth and with uh, spirituality and she has many extraordinary um, talents and gifts as a, as a healer, as a person who is very spiritually connected and attuned. And so she has her own unique feminine way of expressing the same kinds of information, but she does it in a more joyful and uh, um, radiant way, a very bright and, and, extraordinarily hopeful way about the future and is very much a person of positivity and has a very beautiful spirit. So people think that we're pretty good match because I'm more of the 
brainiac kind of guy that wants to get into all the nuance of <laughs> the kind of detail I've you know expressed here today. But um, you know, she's she's just got a whole different expressiveness about her that's quite refreshing for a lot of people. It's a good balance, you know. And um, yeah. No, she's such a beautiful soul. I mean, the first time I really saw her was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, whatever month ago, during that very, very long conference. But I was so impressed. She's so amazing. And well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, but the younger people that are kind of taking on this framework and beginning to utilize it and to express it in their own way, that's really terrific. I mean, Tamara Star Blanket with her book, Suffer the Little Children, uh, Genocide, Indigenous Nations, and the Canadian State. I think, I believe that's the correct subtitle. But in any case, she's done a lot of work with the framework that I'm talking about, the framework of domination and dehumanization in her book. And of course, cognitive theory, the theory of the human mind and how categorization works, how the terminology works. These are all very, very critically important um, concepts and ideas to bring forward. So they're demonstrating the usefulness of the framework, and uh, we just need a lot more people to begin to do that. And I think that once people really, truly understand that the name of the beast is domination, it kind of brings things to light in a little bit different way then they can realize, well, the white supremacy, the racism, the uh, militarization of the police, the all the aspects of the military-industrial complex, the um, 24-7 surveillance state, you know, soon to be the artificial intelligence surveillance state, and so many other types of things are just more and more manifestations of the system of domination. It's really everywhere because that's the route. And when those ships came ashore uh, in the east, on the eastern seaboard in Manhattan and other places where you are, um, uh, Manhattan where you are, uh, they planted those seeds. And if you go down to the tap root uh, of, of what was uh, planted, you come to the domination because that's, that's the root of the whole thing and everything extends out of that. So, yeah, it's very, very uh, extraordinarily interesting work. And I feel that this idea that they brought their mental world of domination over here and began to Im impose their control, uh, their ideas and their categories on everyone and everything, all their behaviors and so forth, and that we're basically caught up in their mental world at this time. That's a pretty interesting insight for me anyway, to realize that um, they believed when they came over here, they assumed that our nations and peoples became instantly subject to their thoughts and ideas of domination and whatever additional ideas of domination they or their descendants were able to dream up and put down on paper. But what's the premise of that assumption that everyone and everything here should be subject to their thoughts and ideas, to their science or whatever terms they want to put on their thoughts and ideas of domination. That, that assumption is rooted once again, as we talked about in the chosen people promised land narrative and 
the idea of divine right of kings and divine right of domination, basically, God-given right of domination. So that's what I'm challenging. And I say we need to find the domination-free zones or begin to create them and begin to envision a world without domination. What would that look like? And do we have any models or examples of that? And what kind of human communication, respectful human communication is necessary to not engage in the typical domination patterning. So there's there's so much to this. And it, we're just at the, I think, at the very starting point of really breaking through this in a profound way and getting more and more people to understand the real nature of the system and the implications of this kind of analysis. Oh, this is incredibly important. And what is on my mind a lot is that, again, with the current developments, and it seems like the pressure is so high on so many people, maybe with the exception with a very few comfortable work from home class, but everybody else seemingly is freaking out because things are really weird and destructions are being taken away and the economic stability is not there anymore. And it is almost like, again, we're given an opportunity to think, like, why? What is the root of that? Well, why we are dealing with that and how we unite? And speaking of uniting, there's my own observation that, again, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about. It seems like with the circumstance becoming more challenging and there's more pressure and there's a more moral motivation for everybody to unite and find common ground. And I don't mean, again, lofty, that same word. I don't mean anything cheesy or something that is not connected to physical reality, not something that comes from here, but just fundamentally see that ultimately people want to be happy. They, 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 they want their spirit to be respected. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the foundational, you know, humanity, right? And at the same time, there seems to be the conversation that is given to us seemingly from the top trying to divide people on as many categories as possible. And it's ethnic and racial and political and gender, like everything, all those divisions are coming at us. And it seems like it's almost you can't talk about certain things if you're not a certain way. And to me, it seems like very clearly a way to divide us because can you imagine if everybody, or everybody again is a big word, but at least a fair amount of people wake up to reality and like, oh, we're all being screwed. Oh, we ultimately we have something in common that is important and we all want to be dignified. And then all those people in very high positions with, who are scared and greedy, they will have nothing on us because they are very few and we are many. So, and I think this division is happening on purpose. So what do you, what do you think? Are you observing anything similar or? Well, the the state of confusion is extraordinary, and I think there's an interesting way in which the human brain tends to shut down and not try to seek answers or oh, I just can't think about that right now. There's a, a kind of a turning away from the problem when it gets to be too overwhelming or feels too overwhelming. So that cognitive dissonance, that sense of mental noise and confusion because you have so many different kinds of information coming at you from diametrically opposing perspectives, and then the suppression of thought, the suppression of analysis, 
meaning not encouraging people to ask questions, but actually encouraging people to not ask questions. And there's something wrong with asking questions. And there's something wrong with uh, looking deeper into things and having one's own viewpoint if it, con- if it contradicts the kind of um, bonafide or certified or fact-checker mentality well, a lot, who's check, who's fact checking the fact checkers, you know, and how far do you take that? So then there's the idea that some voices should not be heard at all uh, because they're too repugnant and too terrible and too dangerous. And so there's a lot of ways in which the confusion is used by those that know how to manipulate meaning and manipulate reality. Um, even that use of the term conspiracy theory a term that was popularized by the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, after people became very skeptical of the Warren Commission report after the John F. Kennedy assassination, something that happened when I was eight years old, uh, that that assassination, which is why I think I have a fascination with that kind of, of information and questions around those kinds of events. In fact, I have an article sitting here next to me that I published in Indian Country Today titled Conspir- on, on Conspiracy. And I began to look at that whole idea of what is a conspiracy and how is that different from a long-range plan made in secret. Um, is there any fundamental difference? And are there actually long-range plans made in secret in places like the Pentagon or the Central Intelligence Agency or the you know, um, uh, different security agencies, um, intelligence agencies of countries all over the world. Um, take your pick, right? And of course, there are very well laid long range plans for detrimental and diabolical things against all kinds of folks all over the planet. And that's no mystery. That's not even open to question. But yet, this idea that conspiracy theory is the slur now. Oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. Okay, that's fine. But that's that's uh, designed to suppress thought and put an end to thought, to put an end to questions rather than encouraging questions. And so if we've been given a high degree of intelligence, which I think almost all of us have to a greater or lesser degree, then we should be putting that intelligence to work by asking questions and knowing what are the right questions to ask and how are, you know, a set of questions going to lead to other questions and continuing on like that. What is the nature of human knowledge? How do we know uh, where, how to verify whether what we believe is true is actually true. And especially when there are many different viewpoints and science is not exact. It's inexact because it's always in, in a process of thinking through in more detail based upon additional findings and understandings. And so it's always tentative. It's up to this point. This is what we understand up to this point. That's why I was very specific about that in my book. At the opening of my book, I said, this is what I understand up to this point. It's tentative. These are not claims on my part that these are absolute truths or that, um, uh, that they will never be contradicted. Perhaps there will be ways in which I will think of other things or obtain new information that I was unaware of when I wrote this book. That's, that's the whole nature of human knowledge. 
And so these are very important questions about what are the fundamental values of the society. And if, in fact, the fundamental values of the American society are domination and dehumanization, and nobody seems to know that because they cover it with nice sounding words of patriotism and democracy and so forth and so on, then we're just being bamboozled and uh, tricked and hoodwinked into a kind of uh, sleepwalking state that we live in most of the time. And how do we bust out of that? How do we wake ourselves um, to be able to uh, understand more and more and gain greater insight? Um, And then actually tangibly shift away from the patterns of domination and dehumanization, as I said before, and really live ourselves, live our lives on the basis of uh, respect and and a, a respectful kind of communication, which is really tough because we constantly get triggered as human beings. It's just a very, very standard kind of um, way that human beings tend to tend to behave. Right, so it's it's tough. It, it requires discipline. It requires real effort and real true listening. And and even if we don't agree, we can still listen and and have try to have a, a conversation with folks. You know, that's at least my view. Well, I agree with your view completely. And there's one linguistic observation that I, I, I wanted to talk about. I learned something from your work, a phrase, uh, enemy of Christ. It struck me when I saw this phrase because it is so similar to today's narrative about if somebody disagrees with my point of view, it's not just the person who disagrees. He is the enemy or she is the enemy. And it seems like, well, it's an obvious concept, but I just didn't explicitly trace it to that particular phrase. And when I read it in your work, I was like, wow, that is exactly it. Because if, say, if I am Christian and then somebody else is something else, it's not that they are a person of a different belief. They're an enemy. That is such a different framework of thinking than, okay, so I have my thing, they have my, they have their thing, and it's cool. So similarly today, if somebody has a different view, they're not just the person who maybe I think they're crazy and their ideas are stupid, but they're entitled to it, right? Instead, they're my enemy, which is, again, which is its own animal. So that really struck me. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, and the, the other thing is the phrase enemy of the state. So this is a very important point. If you say enemy of the state, that's one kind of meaning. If you say enemy of the state of domination, suddenly it, the truth of the matter really comes into, into sharp relief. It's just obvious. Wow enemy of the state of domination because the state of domination doesn't like any resistance. Invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue. That's the formula. You come on top of them, you capture them, you vanquish them, you subdue them, you break their spirit of resistance. And so it's all well laid out over centuries and probably thousands of years. So yeah, you you declare that person to be an enemy and then they're... Anything is is uh, acceptable. Any treatment of them is acceptable because they're enemies, and they're they're an existential threat to your very existence. 
So if you can turn it around and have invading uh, nations from Christendom, from the Christian empire, come here and treat our as enemies of their existence, we're a threat to their existence. Well, they're over here in our, in our, on our lands. You know, we're not over there invading them, and yet we're an, an exist, existential threat, a threat to threat to their existence. It's preposterous if you trace it out. But uh, there's another part of this that's really interesting too, and I hope it's not off topic of what you were just talking about. But when when the people. Uh, on the shore are looking out at those initial ships, the first ships coming toward the shore. Obviously, they have no understanding of the language that's being spoken by those foreigners, those invaders on those ships. When those invaders come to shore, they don't know what language they're speaking. They have no you know, sense of what their ideas are, their mentality is, or anything. And in short order, they will begin to find out through the behavior of those people. But how long will it take them or their descendants to understand the language of the invader to an extent necessary to have this kind of a conversation that we're having today? I think about that a lot because our ancestors had no understanding of those documents that created the impetus and the uh, goal that they had in sailing those ships. We had no understanding at that time of the elite, of the elite, of the elite, of the colonizer society, of the imperial system that was coming over here. And so how many centuries does it get take to get to that point of understanding, to go back through those documents and meticulously take them apart and get to the kind of insight and understanding we have today? That's a very difficult uh, effort. It's extremely difficult. And I've dedicated my entire adult life to that. So it's not to make a big deal of it. I'm just saying that this is, this is the work that we needed to do and that, we've been, that we will continue to need to do as, as people on this planet to get to a better understanding of systems thinking. How do systems operate and how, specifically how do systems of domination operate and how do they get maintained over time? And what are the consequences of those systems of domination? And how do we get to a place of non-domination? In other words, uh, those domination-free zones or the having as the baseline our original free existence before any empire of domination was imposed on our nations and peoples. Your work is tremendously important. And I, for one, am really thankful to you for all your work. And so now you're working on a new book. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Well, yeah, it's uh, at the moment, it, the working title is Built by Blood of the Indians. And uh, of the Domination Code is the subtitle. The quote comes from a Chumash elder named Eva Pagaling from 1979. She was interviewed by a young man named Steve Edinger, who had received a national endowment for the Humanities Youth Grant to do a study on the mission system, the California mission system, and what happened to the native people under that system. So he went around to various reservations and Ava was one of the elders he interviewed. And she said something along the lines of, they didn't care how many Indians they killed when they built that church there. They had so many of them. I feel that that church was built by blood of the Indians. 
And so I took that and used that as the working title at the moment. And when I wrote that, I remembered that when I was in Puerto Rico, when we interviewed Dr. Luis Rivera Pagan, uh, I ended up in a conversation with a man, a Spanish-speaking man who had overheard a couple of the Spanish-speaking docents at some point. He overheard them speaking about the use of the blood of dead Indians as a coagulant to put in the mortar for the Spanish fort, the building of the Spanish fort to reinforce the mortar. And that was just staggering to hear that. And you could say, well, maybe it's just apocryphal, maybe they made it up. But to me, that there must be something to that, at least a question to look into, because why would they be having that conversation? So you have those couple of examples, and then you also have the example of a book that was donated to the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, back in the late 1800s. And the book is titled The, Christ- the History of Christianity, and the cover of the book was made from the skin of one of our Lenape people that had been turned into leather, a form of leather, and used to bind that book. And so I just thought that was an extraordinary metaphor of the history of Christianity. We could change that title to be the bloody history of Christianity or the Christian empire, you know. So that's, uh, so the book is looking into the domination system, but I also developed a domination translator and I'm providing people with um, the skills necessary to understand when they're reading a paragraph there may be six instances of domination in that paragraph, but they're unaware of them. They just read it and they don't notice that at all, even though there could be some horrific things in there. But what I do is use a technique and make that background context of domination pop out into the foreground through the use of that technique. So that's just one example of um, some of the, and then decoding print of, of uh, symbols uh, such as the Liberty Bell is an example, let freedom ring. But freedom is a word that goes to the German term Freitom, which means baron's estate. And so it's part of a monarchical system. And then also the Liberty Bell, the bell is the symbol of the domination system, the dome. And above that is a yoke. And you, the term sub, under, and jugare, uh, meaning to yoke, and you have this yoke above the bell, so the bell is subjugare. It's under the under subjugation, right? So it's it's a symbol of subjugation, a symbol of domination. And then they say, "Let freedom ring." So it's really bizarre. And then the the um, the thing that swings back and forth and rings the bell is the individual under the limits of the domination system, under the yoke. And and so to yoke means to, um, or subjugate or subju- subjugation means to force, to work under the uh, uh, work harness or under the yoke, you know. So these are just a few examples of some of the things people will find in the book. Well, human beings are such a mess. But I, I am extremely grateful to you for all your work and... Uh, well, when your book comes out, I'll definitely let all of my people know. And I agree with you in that. Well, let me, let me make one additional comment, which is, yeah, 
uh, human existence, uh, an existence under domination is a myth, uh, is a mess. But we also have these innate spiritual aspects of our being, our life force, which is connected to the life force of the universe of all life here on planet Earth. And we have original teachings and instructions and uh, concepts in our, in our language like uh, um, Lehelehe Oken or Holtawaken or uh, Gishilemiang or Kika Yoyamananinga, okay? Concepts of ancestors of life, the life force of love for life. And uh, all these ways in which our languages have been evolved over thousands and thousands of years to use the Western, Europe, Western European time frame. And there are ways in which our original languages uh, been evolved for the purpose of having that deep appreciation for one another and for the life force of, of all things and the manifestation of the life force in, in form. So there, there also is just this amazing capacity for human beings to, to love and have tenderness and affection and, and so forth. And this is what gets covered up and distorted and, and um, abused through the trauma of the domination system. And so, yeah, there, there are all these ways in which I've illustrated, I think, in this conversation with you today, the horrible nature of the domination system. At the same time, it's important, and this is why I think Shauna's work is so important, to talk about the reverence code as an alternative or the the um, different path from the domination path and have, you know, getting in touch with that real deeper part of our capacity for love and for treating people on a basis of respect and so forth and other forms of life too. So I just wanted to add that little bit to the mix. Well, that is obviously a very important bit and thank you. And I'll, We've talked about many things and thank you again for doing this conversation. And at the end, I just yeah. want to say, may we all find our souls and heal because I don't think we have any other options really. So thank yes. you, Steve. Thank you, Wanishi. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.